to Acts chapter 8 in your Bible. Get a chance to read Isaiah 43, 1 through 7. It's a blessing to know God's care for His people. So he spoke about His care for the nation of Israel there. Certainly, if He cares for them, and He also calls us His people who have believed in His Son, His care for us is the same. We are precious to Him. If He should take someone in death due to a circumstance that would be like the martyrs in the Bible or the martyrs in the time of the Reformation, there's still the resurrection. And without the doctrine of the resurrection, there are some times where we see things happen and we may question that God does keep us safe. But if we understand the truth of God's Word, we understand even those whose lives have been taken by those who oppose the gospel, those who oppose God, we know in the end Christ, of course, will avenge their death and He will raise them up by His power. How will He raise them up? By His Spirit who dwells in us. This week, as we were, this last week, as we were looking on Wednesday night at the last petition um, of the, the Lord's Prayer, the Disciples' Prayer, one of the illustrations I used, and I felt like it was appropriate for uh, time focusing on the, the Reformation, was Thomas Cranmer, who is a uh, as you were speaking this morning, Pastor John made me think whether Cranmer was aware of that teaching or the things that those who were in prison, uh, if he was aware of all the things that were said. He certainly knew the truth when he was thrown in prison by Bloody Mary, but he was, had been the Archbishop of Canterbury and he was put under enormous pressure to recant the truth and uh, even humiliated publicly in numerous ways. And because of all that pressure, he did recant what he believed to be the truth taught in Scripture. And he, under pressure, and he says that later, he acknowledged the Pope to be the supreme head of the church. He claimed that he believed in transubstantiation. He confessed the seven sacraments. The reality, it's not a reality, but he confessed that purgatory was a real thing and also the appropriateness of prayers to saints. He claimed to believe all that the Roman Catholic Church taught. And so here's near the end of his life under severe pressure. He is capitulating. And he's still going to be executed even though he had recanted. Bloody Mary purposed to have him executed. And as I shared with those who were here on Wednesday night, she required someone to preach a sermon on the eve of his death, calling out his sins. And as he was listening, 
he had formerly been dressed in robes as the archbishop. Now he's dressed in rags to humiliate him. He's listening to this sermon, weeping, crying, actually asking the congregation who were looking on to pray for him because of his many sins. And he said, I'm going to confess one more even after this sermon is over. And as he confessed, he recanted his recantation. And he's about to die, and he knows that he's about to die, but as he's facing death, it's really that issue that is before him. What is his faith? What does he truly believe? He wants to set the record straight. And I, I just want to read it again. If you were here uh, Wednesday night, you'll get to hear it again. He said, Now as far as much as I've come to the last end of my life, whereupon hangs all my life past and all my life to come, either to live with my Master Christ forever in joy, or else to be in pain forever with the wicked in hell. And I see before my eyes presently either heaven ready to receive me or else hell ready to swallow me up. I shall therefore declare unto you my very faith, how I believe, without any color of dissimulation, for now is no time to dissemble, whatsoever I have said or written in times past. First, I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. I believe every article of the Catholic faith, and he's talking about the universal faith, not the Roman Catholic faith. You'll see that in a moment. He said, every word and sentence taught by our Savior Jesus Christ, His apostles and prophets in the New and Old Testament. And now I come to the great thing where, uh, which so much troubleth my conscience more than anything that I ever did or said in my whole life. And that is the setting abroad of a writing contrary to the truth, which now here I renounce and refuse as things written with my hand contrary to the truth which I thought in my heart and written for fear of death, and to save my life if it might be. And that is, all such bills or papers which I have written or signed with my hands since my degradation, time when he was humbled, thrown in prison, he says, wherein I have written many things untrue, and forasmuch as my hand has offended, writing contrary to my heart, therefore my hand shall be first punished, for when I come to the fire it shall first be burned." And as for the Pope, I refuse him as Christ's enemy and antichrist with all his false doctrine. And as for the sacrament, I believe, as I have taught in my book against the Bishop of Winchester, which my book teaches so true a doctrine of the sacrament, that it shall stand in the last day before the judgment of God, where the papistical doctrines, the Pope's doctrines, contrary thereto, shall be ashamed to show their face. And I love the comparison, I believe it was Fox's comparison, that in his death, he did more harm to false doctrine. In other words, he set forth the truth in these moments and did more harm, sort of like what Samson did at the very end when he destroyed that Philistine stronghold. And Cranmer is one of many martyrs. And we can listen to a song like we just sang and we think that 
somehow we'll pass through this life and never face anything like that. But Cranmer's life, he had those same promises from God's Word. And there are certainly times when God does allow someone to go through the fire and they aren't scorched. Think about Daniel's three friends. And Daniel himself went into the lion's den. So God can miraculously deliver, but He doesn't always. And there, of course, are times where someone gives their life for the sake of Christ. And what is the vindication? Well, the vengeance of God, but also the resurrection because those martyrs will be raised to eternal life with God forever. Of course, when they left this life, they went to be with Him. So that, that does help us when we think about what happens in this world that is adverse to us or sometimes when suffering. If we keep in mind that God is, of course, sovereign over death and He's sovereign over the resurrection. And in the end, we have great hope because of the teaching of Scripture. So I hope as we think about, we've been brought to think about today some things with regard to the Reformation, I hope that we are thankful and I hope that we're also thoughtful about what God's Word is teaching us. I ask you to turn to Acts chapter 8, and I want to look at verse 14 today down through verse 24. Let's begin reading in verse 14. The Scripture says, Now when the apostles in Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent them Peter and John, who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. For He had not yet fallen upon any of them. They had simply been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they began laying their hands on them, and they were receiving the Holy Spirit. Now when Simon saw that the Spirit was bestowed through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money, saying, Give this authority to me as well, so that everyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. But Peter said to him, May your silver perish with you, because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. You have no part nor portion in this matter, for your heart is not right before God. Therefore repent of this wickedness of yours, and pray the Lord that if possible the intention of your heart may be forgiven you. For I see that you are in the gall of bitterness and in the bondage of iniquity. But Simon answered and said, Pray to the Lord for me yourselves, so that nothing of what you have said may come upon me. May the Lord bless the reading of His Word to our hearts. We looked at verses 5 down through verse 13 as the gospel came to Samaria, Philip, as he was scattered along with the rest of the saints there. Jerusalem went out preaching the Word. Philip goes to Samaria of all places. Remember, Samaria is not friendly to Jews and vice versa. They did not have anything to do with one another if they could help it. But Philip goes there, and in God's providence and in his working by his Spirit as he's preaching Christ to the people, the gospel is effective, and God is working in the hearts of the people so that they believe. The city actually gives undivided attention to the gospel, the preaching of the gospel, and the miracles that were taking place there. There was joy in the city, verse 8 says. And then there's this individual who is part of the picture there in Samaria, who actually had the attention of all the people prior to Philip's coming. 
And it seems, as Luke records here, that this most prominent citizen, this sorcerer, celebrity of sorts, actually responded to the gospel as well. And we kind of left him, as we were looking at this the last time, the very end of verse 13, and notice that he was with Philip, observing the signs and the miracles that were taking place, and he was constantly amazed by it. And that could be perceived as a good thing, that someone would be with the one who is preaching the gospel, desiring to learn more. But what I believe we're going to see in this section as we just read it is that this is no true believer, but actually a pretender. And there's more things that are taking place in verses 14 and following that are supernatural. God in His Spirit is going to fall upon the Samaritans, and we'll consider that because this is a unique passage as we look at Acts. We have to look at some other ones to consider what's really going on here. But the Spirit falls upon the Samaritans. He is given to the Samaritans. The Samaritans are receiving the Holy Spirit, and then... Through that, there's then the discovery of an imposter, the discovery of a pretender among the Samaritans. The reason I'm using the word fall when it comes to the Spirit is verse 16, when it says, For he had not yet fallen upon any of them. That same language is used in Acts chapter 10, if you want to just turn over a couple of pages, Acts chapter 10, Peter is preaching to a Gentile household. In verse 44, it says, while Peter was still speaking these words, the Holy Spirit fell upon all those who were listening to the message. And then again in chapter 11, verse 15, as Peter is talking about it, look at verse 15 of chapter 11. It says, And as I began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell upon them just as He did upon us at the beginning. Now Peter is actually connecting a couple of things here. He's connecting what happened there at Cornelius' household, but he's also connecting what happened back at the beginning. What's the beginning? That's Pentecost. So we have some similarity of language in terms of the pouring out of the Spirit. There's another word. And the Spirit falling upon a group of people. In chapter 10, he falls upon these Gentiles. That's how Peter explains it. But then Peter describes this in terms of what happened at Pentecost. But back to Acts chapter 8, the gospel has already been preached People have already believed in Christ. People have been baptized in Jesus' name, but the Spirit had not yet fallen. And we have to ask the question, what is going on here? And as we consider that question, I think it's helpful to look at these other passages and consider them because what is taking place here is a work that God is doing as He sends the gospel to different people groups. I mentioned in chapter 10, it's the Gentiles. Here's 
a group of people that we might call a bridge group between Jew and Gentile. It's the Samaritans. And remember, as Jesus described the spread of the gospel in Acts chapter 1 and verse 8, He said, You will be witnesses unto me in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and unto the uttermost part of the earth, which is the Gentiles. And so this is that bridge group, you would say, they had some knowledge of the truth, they had the law of God, they knew that there was a Messiah, but they were not Jews, but I don't think they would have regarded themselves as fully Gentile either. It's this group, you might say, that's in the middle. Look at verse 14. The good news had come to Samaria, but now the good news about that is coming back to Jerusalem. Verse 14 says, Now when the apostles in Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God. We're not told how the news spread. It does seem that there would have, had some, there would have been some time that would pass between Philip's preaching and the reception of the Samaritans and then the news coming back to Jerusalem where the apostles were. And remember, if you look back at verse 1 in the chapter, the apostles were not scattered with the rest of everyone else, and so that's where they maintained, even to this point. Uh, We don't, again, know how much time has passed, but what they come to understand is as all these disciples are scattered out, there's some activity going on in Samaria where the Samaritans have received the Word of God. Philip had preached Christ, he'd preached the kingdom of God, the name of Jesus Christ, and the word of God has come and has been received. And notice that in verse 14, that that is the explanation for the reception of the gospel. What is is Philip preaching? He's preaching Christ. He's preaching, verse 12 says, the good news about the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ. But it's summarized in verse 14 with the words, the Word of God. I'm just saying that as we preach the gospel, that is God's Word. And that's how Luke summarizes here. It's like what Paul said in 1 Thessalonians, For this reason we constantly thank God that when you received the Word of God which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the Word of men, but for what it really is, the Word of God which performs its work in you who believe. Well, what had Paul preached to the Thessalonians? He preached the good news of Jesus Christ. This is the Word of God. In fact, it's the gospel of God. We have to remember as well that up to this point, prior to the scattering, the center of gospel activity is Jerusalem. Now it's expanding to Samaria And so the fact that it's spreading to Samaria, the the apostles were certainly aware of what Christ had said, but they want to verify and and make certain that it really is a response to the good news. And I believe that's why in verse 14 it says, they, that is the apostles, sent Peter and John as sort of a delegation of the twelve apostles down to Samaria. Remember verse 15 when it says, who came down, it's coming down from the mountain of Jerusalem all the way into Samaria, this place where Jews wouldn't go unless they had to. They would take pains to avoid it, but Peter and John, like Philip, were willing to go there. And as they go, and as they come and arrive on scene, we're just told that when they came, 
verse 15, it says, they prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. So when Peter and John come, they realize that there's something missing. Now, I want to be careful here because if someone has responded to the gospel message, as Philip preached it, we would certainly say Philip was filled with the Spirit. He was part of the Jerusalem church, but as the gospel is preached and then and, and received, you'd have to say that does take the work of the Spirit to bring that about. Again, look back at verse 13. These are true believers. It says, or verse 12 rather, when they believed Philip preaching the good news about the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ, they were being baptized men and women alike. So this really is conversion. Of course, we have Simon as a question here. But what is going on that verse 15 would say that they're coming down so that they might receive the Holy Spirit? And take a look back at Acts chapter 2, because Peter, in his preaching of the gospel, gave a promise for those who heard the gospel and responded to the gospel that they would receive the Holy Spirit. This is Acts chapter 2. Again, verse 38, as Peter is preaching in Jerusalem on the day of Pentecost. I'll start in verse 37. Now, when they heard this, they were pierced to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brethren, what shall we do? Peter said to them, Repent, and each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. That's one thing that happens, a blessing that happens when someone puts their faith in Christ, and then it says, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. You will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. That was Peter's proclamation. In fact, it wasn't just that. Peter goes on to say, verse 39, for the promise is for you and for your children. And notice, and for all who are far off, as many as the Lord our God will call to himself. So Peter, speaking on that day, certainly making that proclamation to Jews alone, but he includes all those that are far off, which would include who? And I think if we look at the teaching of Scripture, Old and New Testament, we certainly would say those who are far off are the Gentiles. So the Jews are given that promise, but the Gentiles as well, and we would also say certainly the bridge group in between should expect to receive the Holy Spirit. And one question, if you turn back to Acts chapter 8, trying to point out in part that these people are truly converted. They believed, verse 12. They were baptized, verse 12. They were baptized in Jesus' name. Verse 16 reiterates that point. It says, for he had not fallen upon any of them. They had simply been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. But these are true converts. So why don't they have the Spirit? Why don't they, like those at Jerusalem, why haven't they yet received the Holy Spirit of God? Why does it take 
the apostles to come here and pray for them. And that at that point, they start to receive the Holy Spirit. And it's an important question. And there are some who would say, well, this has to, this has to happen for everybody. A person who believes, you have to have some second blessing, they might say, some baptism of the Spirit that then gives you the Spirit. And I don't believe the teaching of the Word of God squares with that thought. It is interesting, if you listen to the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 8, he says, however, you are not in the flesh but in the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you. But if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to him. And so what Paul is saying as he's writing to the Romans is that if you don't have the Spirit, you don't belong to Christ. Now that may, might be confusing because you hear what Paul's saying, you see what's going on here. You have true conversion but no Spirit yet until they come and pray for them. I think it's helpful to remember that Paul is writing after the book of Acts is over. And I think it's also important to remember that this time in the book of Acts is a transitional time. That there's a transition taking place as the gospel goes first to Jerusalem, the city of the great king, and to those Jews, but then as it goes to the Gentiles, and then, excuse me, then it goes to the Samaritans here, and then it goes to the Gentiles. There's a transition that's taking place, and I think we're seeing that transition here. We can talk about other passages later. I, I do want to draw attention to that transition, especially as we think about the book of Acts, because we believe, do we not, that the Bible, as we would say, is our only rule for faith and practice? It is what we base our doctrine and teaching on. But does that mean that we follow every example? Even if we were to think about the subject of worship, we are not here today to offer a lamb or a goat or a bull on an altar. And yet we would say that if you look at the Scripture, there are certain examples of those who worship God and that's how they did it. But we also recognize that God progressively reveals to His people how they are to worship Him. And in this dispensation, we don't worship God that way any longer. In fact, we understand that those sacrifices pointed to Jesus Christ, the perfect sacrifice. Those were all typical pointing to Him, and He fulfilled them. So we no longer offer sacrifices. Even if we were to look at the book of Acts, there are certain things about the book of Acts that are not true or consistent with what we're doing today. There are some things that we would say that example for us is right and good, and that's what we ought to do. There are others where we would say that's not how we do it anymore. We certainly aren't taking pains to meet in Solomon's porch. It's a long ways away, and it's probably an interesting place to be today. We don't have any living apostles to listen to, though, of course, we have the apostles' teaching here in the Word of God. We do believe that our, our 
activity as a church should be consistent with what the church was doing as they worshiped in Acts 2.42. They were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and prayer. We do believe that we ought to practice believers' baptism as Acts teaches. We should observe the Lord's table as they did. But should we expect the same kind of activity of the Spirit now as we saw then? I think the answer to that is no. We're, we're talking about in the book of Acts a transitional time as, again, the gospel is going out from the Jews and now coming to the Samaritans and later on to the Gentiles. And the Spirit is actually, if you look at the passages, doing different things even with these different groups. In fact, just for the sake of example, as we look at this passage, it tells us these people had been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. They'd already believed, they'd been baptized in Jesus' name, they did not yet have the Spirit. Turn back to Acts chapter 10 for a moment. And look at the end of the chapter. As Peter is preaching the gospel, verse 44, it says, While Peter was still speaking these words, the Holy Spirit fell upon all those who were listening to the message. All the circumcised believers who came with Peter were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out on the Gentiles also, for they were hearing them speaking with tongues and exalting God. Then Peter answered, Surely no one can refuse the water for these to be baptized who received the Holy Spirit just as we did, can he? And he ordered them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. So the order here is reversed. Whereas with the Samaritans, the Spirit had not yet fallen on them, even though they'd been baptized, here with the Gentiles, the Spirit falls on them even before they're baptized. Which is really a reminder, isn't it, of Peter's promise that those who repent and turn from their sins and put their trust in Christ will receive forgiveness of sins. They'll also receive the Spirit. Now go back to Acts chapter 8. Let's figure out what's going on here. What's taking place here? Verse 17 says, Then they began laying their hands on them, and they were receiving the Holy Spirit. So what's taking place is the apostles have come. They are praying for them that they might receive the Spirit. And then they start laying their hands on them, and they are receiving the Spirit. The laying out of hands in Scripture is used at times to bestow some kind of blessing. For instance, in the gospel, someone lays hands on someone who is in need of healing. Jesus did that in Luke 13, 13, with a woman who was bent over and could not straighten up because of an evil spirit. Even in Acts chapter 9, the very next chapter, Ananias comes and lays his hands on Saul, later known as Paul, so that he might regain his sight. So the laying out of hands bestows a blessing. It's also used in connection with commissioning or ordination of an officer or missionary. But here, it's the apostles who are laying their hands on these Samaritans, and then they are receiving the Spirit. And how did they know that they were receiving the Spirit? 
Well, Luke doesn't actually tell us. Verse 17 says, Then they began laying their hands on them, and they were receiving the Holy Spirit. The idea there is, obviously, the apostles can't put their hands on every single Samaritan who's receiving the Spirit, but as they do, as they pray, laying their hands on these Samaritans successively, many, many people, as they do, there is some indication that they're receiving the Spirit. And what is that? Again, you have to go to other passages to see. Luke doesn't mention it here. It does seem in verse 18 that it catches Simon's attention. So what kinds of things to this point have caught Simon's attention? Well, Simon's already been doing sorcery and magic prior to Philip's preaching, but even what caught his attention when Philip came was the miracles, was the supernatural. And I'm going to suggest, based on comparing Scripture with Scripture, that what is taking place here as the apostles are laying on their hands is there is some kind of a supernatural indication. Why do I say that? Again, we're kind of flipping back and forth between Acts chapter 10 and this chapter. Turn over there for a moment. Acts chapter 10. What was the evidence that the Holy Spirit fell upon the Gentiles? Again, starting in verse 44, while Peter was speaking these words, still speaking these words, the Holy Spirit fell upon all those who were listening to the message. All the circumcised believers who came with Peter were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out on the Gentiles also, for they were hearing them speak with tongues and exalting God. The same thing that's happening at Pentecost and the same thing that happens later in the book of Acts with a small group of disciples in Acts chapter 19. But what I'm suggesting is that if you look at what happens at Pentecost, you look at what happens with the Gentiles, that's also happening with the Samaritans here. Turn back to Acts chapter 8. That is what Simon is observing that attracts his attention. It was the indication that the Samaritans, just like the Jews, had received the Holy Spirit. So what's going on here? Well, if you think about the apostles, remember the apostles are the leaders of the early church. They were influential in Jerusalem, leading the church in Jerusalem, but now... The work of God is spreading elsewhere, and their apostolic authority is expanding. And so this delegation, Peter and John, they're going to authenticate to say this really is true conversion. These people are believing in Christ. And as the Spirit is given, they recognize that God is doing a work among the Samaritans too. This is really something God is doing. So there's a sense in which what's taking place here is the church is, is finding a unity both in terms of the leadership of the church, the apostles, but also the experience of the church as the Samaritans are gifted with the same spirit as the Jews. And God is establishing His authority in the church, the apostles, 
but he's also establishing a unity between the Samaritans and the Jews. The same Spirit, the same Messiah, the same God. For these people who were at odds with one another, who would not have anything to do with one another, now God is by His Spirit bringing them together in an amazing unity. You might ask the question, how else could that bridge be get, I mean, that gap be bridged? What else would Samaritan and Jew have in common? What else could bring them together in such an integral way other than Christ and other than the Spirit of God who now indwells both Samaritan and Jew? It's sort of like Paul later says, he's talking about Gentiles. He says, therefore, remember that formerly you, the Gentiles in the flesh, who are called uncircumcision by the so-called circumcision, which is performed in the flesh by human hands, remember that you were at that time separate from Christ, excluded from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now... In Christ Jesus, you who formerly were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace who made both groups into one and broke down the barrier of the dividing wall. By abolishing in his flesh the enmity, which is the law of commandments contained in ordinances, so that in himself he might make the two into one new man, thus establishing peace, and might reconcile them both into one body to God through the cross, by it having put to death the enmity. There he's talking about Gentiles, the Ephesians, and the Jews. But what about the bridge group in between? God is establishing a unity as he brings the apostles here to exercise authority and for them also to be witness to the fact that the Spirit is also given to the Samaritans. You know what, God in bringing these two groups together, he still brings people together. People from every tongue, tribe, and nation. You could hardly think it, that this world, which is so filled with rage and hatred, enmity and opposition between the nations, what's going to bring them together? Really, submission to Christ. God by His Spirit working in them. And it will be something to see when those of every tongue and tribe and nation bow before the Lamb for sinners slain. This is a taste of it. Just a taste of it. As the gospel is expanding to Samaria. And these... Samaritans now have that same gift, the gift of the Spirit, the Spirit who aids us in our obedience to God as we put sin to death, the same Spirit who's the guarantee of the resurrection, the same Spirit who helps us to relate to God as Father, that same Spirit who's the Spirit of supplications, the Spirit of grace, that same Spirit is now the Holy Spirit living inside the Samaritans and bringing them to greater understanding, certainly, God in Christ, what a blessing the Samaritans received on this day. But remember, this falling of the Spirit as He does upon them and the sign that's accompanied with it, again, I'm not 
adding to Scripture by saying that I'm comparing Scripture with Scripture. And I'm suggesting that Simon sees something in verse 18. Look at verse 18. It says, Now when Simon saw that the Spirit was bestowed through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he saw something. What did he see? Well, if it's consistent with the other passages, that there's something supernatural that these ones who, these Samaritans are now experiencing, then you can see why he would very quickly covet that and desire that and then want to have it himself. That's the first thing that he does when he sees it. Look at verse 18. Now, when Simon saw that the Spirit was bestowed through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money. So Simon, who had closely connected himself to Philip back in verse 13, is now observing the apostles, Peter and John. He's watching as each of these Samaritans have the apostles' hands laid on them. And if they had the supernatural signs as they did in other passages, he's seeing that too. And he wants this power. He greatly desires it so that he also could do this. And I believe that becomes evident from his act in verse 18 at the end of the verse when it says he offered them money. You know, you can make a verbal offer of something without having the cash in hand. Financing might come later. But the language here expresses that he actually had the money and brought the money. The word that's translated offered, verse 18, is the idea of he brought it to them, and the word money is plural, so he may be offering a substantial sum. The word brought is also used in the Gospel of Matthew, where Jesus is debating the Jews, and someone brings a coin to him so that he can use it as an illustration. Simon has seen the Holy Spirit be given, and now he in a sense, sort of takes out his wallet, and he's wanting to give. It seems like it's actually silver, based on what Peter says in verse 20. But he's offering money so that he can have this same power that the apostles have. What does this tell us about Simon? That he would offer silver so that he could have the power to give the Spirit. Well, it suggests a gross misunderstanding of spiritual things. He is completely and totally wrong, and he is still, I believe, Scripture would indicate here that he is a natural man. 1 Corinthians 2, verse 14, A natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, and he cannot understand them because they are spiritually appraised. His petition in verse 19 is, Give this and it's translated authority. This could be the word, uh, it could be translated power. Authority has the idea of right, but it also could be this, the capability to be able to do this. So he's asking and petitioning to be able to have access to give the Holy Spirit on whoever he wishes to. And Peter as he rebukes him, certainly implies there are things that money cannot buy. But beyond that, when 
Peter rebukes him here, there are some very strong words for Simon, which we need to take into account. Simon asking for this authority so that everyone on whom he laid his hands could receive the Holy Spirit, Peter's response immediately. There's an exclamation point at the end of verse 20. May your silver perish with you because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. His rebuke here begins with a curse. J.B. Phillips' translation has it, to hell with your money. But it's not just the money. Notice what Peter says, may your silver perish with you because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. The word that Peter uses there when he, when he uses the word perish is a word for perdition or destruction. It's the same word that's used in Matthew 7, 13. Broad is the way that leads to destruction. Hebrews 10, 39, we are not of those who shrink back to destruction. To destruction with you and your silver? These are strong words. This isn't the only time someone is given a curse in the book of Acts, but this is a curse. Now, whether or not it would come true would depend upon Simon's response, but Peter's immediate response to Simon's offer is that may your silver go to destruction with you because you thought this. The fact that not only he thought it, but that he offered it means that he was in a course of action that was completely not right. And that's why Peter states then in verse 21, the condition of his heart. Look at what he says. You have no part or portion in this matter. This has nothing to do with you. This is not your part, your place to participate in this, Peter says, because your heart is not right with God. The word right means upright. It's not righteous and acceptable in God's sight. Instead, it's unrighteous and sinful. Your heart is wicked. Verse 22, he says, therefore, repent of this wickedness of yours. This is actually a sinful, wicked suggestion that you could somehow access the God of heaven and his power by your money. What a wicked thing to do. Now, lest we think that Simon is beyond repentance, we do find in verse 22 a call to repentance. So Peter, first of all, uttered a curse upon Simon in his current course of action. He states the condition of his heart, but then he calls him to repentance. Verse 22, therefore, repent of this wickedness of yours, and... I'm just going to add a word here that gives the sense. You pray that, if possible, the intention of your heart may be forgiven you. He's calling him to pray a prayer of repentance to turn from this wicked act so that he might be forgiven the intention of his heart. What Simon had done was wicked. What his heart's intention was was wicked. It was evil, twisted, sinful, wrong. The only hope that Peter gives him is that he would turn from this sin and then God would forgive him. I don't believe he's committed here the unpardonable sin, but he has sinned and in a very public way, he has exposed his heart. By the way, that's something that I think we need to recognize here. This is 
This is a public thing. This is a public occasion where he's actually in the presence of others doing this. So Peter's correcting was necessary for others to see as well. What would Simon need to do? He would need to see what he has done as sin. He would need to be sorrowful about it. He would need to confess that sin to God, which would mean prayer to God. He would certainly need to be ashamed of it and hate it and turn from it. And I just listed out Thomas Watson's points with regard to repentance, a sight of sin, sorrow for sin, confession of sin, shame for sin, hatred for sin, turning from sin. But there's more as Peter not only calls him to repentance, but he states the condition of his soul. What does Peter say in verse 23? For I see or I perceive. This is a present tense verb. Peter is given a sight of the reality of what's going on in Simon's heart. He says, I see that you are. This is a present tense reality. This is the state of his soul. Sometimes I look at my daughter's and I'll put my head against their forehead and I'll look them square in the eyes and I'll say something like, I can see your soul. <laughs> and they kind of look at me like, no, you can't. And then I'll say, no, I can't. But you know, God can see the soul of a man or a woman. And what does he see here? It's an interesting statement, verse 23, for I see that you are in the gall of bitterness and in the bondage of iniquity. The gall of bitterness is his predicament, someone has said, in a state of sin. This is not an emotional condition of bitterness. It's similar to what the writer of Hebrews is talking about when he says, see to it that no one comes short of the grace of God, that no root of bitterness or no bitter root springing up causes trouble and by it many be defiled. What is the writer of Hebrews talking about there? He's not so much talking about the sin of bitterness. We know that's a sin, but he's talking about an individual who is, as he says a little bit later, immoral or godless should be among God's people. And through that presence of that person in the midst of God's people, that many will be hurt by the presence of that person. Peter says, I see that you're in the gall of bitterness and in the bondage of iniquity or the bond of iniquity. Well, what would you say if someone is bound in sin and held captive to their sin? You would say they've never been freed or released from their sins by Christ. That's Peter's statement, I believe, given by God to understand the condition of Simon's soul. And what is Simon's response? If someone had just uttered a curse and said that your heart is not right, and called you to repentance, personal repentance. Even as Peter says in verse 22, and pray the Lord, is calling him to talk to the Lord, to speak to the Lord, and confess his sin to the Lord, and then states the condition of his soul, what, what would the appropriate response be? What I would suggest, it's not, what's, it's not what Simon does. Simon is calling for personal repentance 
excuse me, Peter is calling Simon to personal repentance. And instead of personally repenting, Simon asks Peter and John to pray for him. Now that sounds pious. Right? That sounds good that that Simon would ask someone to pray for him. He'd even seen the effectiveness of of Peter's prayers to bring down the spirit. So he knows that that as as Peter prays, his prayers get answered. And so he 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 asks that that he would pray. But this pious sounding response is actually an excuse not to pray himself. And that's sometimes what people do. Rather than responding to a call to repentance, they ask someone else to pray for them. Rather than talking to the Lord themselves. That's what Pharaoh did. As he talked to Moses, Pharaoh didn't know the Lord. He saw all the kinds of things the Lord did, but he didn't know the Lord. Even Saul, as he sinned against the Lord, wanted Samuel to come with him to kind of give him some kind of authenticity before the people. But Saul had sinned, and what was necessary was that Saul would truly repent. But instead, he was looking to Samuel. John Collins lived during the Puritan time, said such are conscious themselves of their want of an interest in God and their being obnoxious to him and that the truly godly are in favor with him. And therefore, when their hearts fail them and they have not the face to look up to God, they will beg the prayers of those that have. When they're in great distresses or dangers on sick beds, when conscience teases them, death looks grimly on them, hell gapes for them and heaven frowns upon them, then they must have some good men to pray for them. Then they think that God is ready to hear such when he is angry with themselves. We don't believe that any person's prayers are more effective than another's, right? I hope you don't think that of mine. We believe in the priesthood of the believer. We all have access to God. We all can pray to God our Father. Now, of course, we need to live righteous lives. We need to be righteous. But in terms of our personal prayers to God, God hears all of our prayers. And I'm not talking about having somebody else pray for you when you need it. That's not what I'm saying. I am saying, what I am saying is here, Simon was called to personally repent. And instead of personally repented, he uses a pious statement that keeps him from praying himself. And stick with me. Last verse here in the section, last portion of the verse. Notice what he's looking for. What's he want? More than anything else. Oh God, forgive me for I have offended you. Pray that God would would forgive me for having offended him. No, he's not talking about offense to God. He's not concerned about the holiness of the Holy Spirit. He just doesn't want the consequences of his sin. And so he says, so that nothing of what you have said may come upon me. Now, some have said that what Simon is doing here gives us hope. We never hear anything more about Simon. But what we find him doing in the very end is not praying himself, but asking someone else to pray for him. That's not going to bring him salvation. 
That's not going to bring anyone salvation. Salvation is a personal trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. It is a personal turning away from sin and trusting in God. Certainly, it's confessing Jesus as Lord, as sovereign, and trusting in Him as Savior. We don't find that here. In fact, we'd expect if there was a response to it immediately, we would have seen it. This pretender, this imposter would finally have come to Christ after a period of time where he was still looking to the supernatural as what he was coveting and interested in. Church history doesn't record, uh, from what we know, the exact details, there are lots of things said about Simon, but exactly what happened to him after this, we don't know for sure. But it just kind of leaves open that question of what exactly took place in his life. We don't know the end of his story, but I would say this. If you heard this message this morning, and as you think about Simon's life as a pretender, you think about his failure to understand spiritual things and his pretending, you know, there could be someone here today that that's the reality in their life. That there's really no true understanding of the things of the Spirit of God. There's still, as Paul says in Corinthians, a natural man doesn't really understand spiritual things fully, and really has never come to the place of genuine repentance, turning from sin. I'm not talking about just turning from things, but turning from sin and to Christ. If that's never been the case with you, I want to encourage you today that the Word of God calls you to repentance, to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. And if you find that you have been pretending, but you're tired of pretending, you may find yourself in a group of people and you really, you, you, you admire them, you listen to what they say, but you just don't fully understand, realize you can come to faith and trust in Christ and your life can be changed. God can do that for you. When his spirit truly does come in and gives you understanding, changes your life, that could be you. If you put your trust in him, and may the Lord help each person to examine themselves. Let's look to the Lord in prayer. Lord, we are sobered by what we see in this passage. The presence of a pretender among the people of God. We thank you, Lord, that there have been those in the past who, as they have realized their spiritual state, have confessed that they were a pretender. And they've turned from their sin, and they've put their trust in Christ. They've stopped relying upon the prayers of others, but, and they have come personally to you to find salvation. And I pray that certainly we'd all examine ourselves We pray that we all would make our calling and election sure. 
But if there's someone here today who has yet to trust, Lord, would you open their eyes to see it, to see the reality in their life, that they might find Christ truly. And we pray these things in Jesus' name.